You should have an outline in front of you. This is Effective Kingdom Prayer Series, chapter C and possibly D. If I don't get through this whole outline today, I may finish it next Sunday morning at the 930. This is uh, the Effective Kingdom Prayer Series. There's a set of titles, but chapter two is all about seven keys to effective kingdom prayer. And we spoke on that last Sunday morning at 9.30, this Sunday morning at 9.30, and now on, at the 10.30 worship service, uh, we're going to talk about it. The, our theme for this series has been Matthew 6.10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Anyone who's really studied the two times uh, that Jesus' disciples come to him and uh, ask him to teach them to prayer, pray will understand some things. One is they saw how effective Jesus' prayer life was. When you consider the intimacy he had with the Father, that he said, I only see what that which the Father's doing, that he's able to walk in. In John chapter 5, he walks into the pool of Bethsaida. There's at least 100 people. I don't. It doesn't give us numbers, but there's people waiting all around the pool for the angel of the Lord to stir the water, because after the angel of the Lord stirs the water, who's ever the first one in gets healed. And there's one man who can't get there because he's crippled and so forth. And Jesus heals that man. And by implication in the dialogue, when goes in no more, et cetera, et cetera, he heals his whole life, not just his physical problems. And he, you know, he basically extends grace that, that begins a relationship out of grace with God for this guy and, get, and grants him repentance that leads to life and so forth. But there's no evidence that he did anything with anybody else. And what's very clear is he did that which by that he was able to discern by the Holy Spirit that the Father was doing. And I would continue to, to put in front of us that that kind of intimacy and leading and relationship with the Holy Spirit is actually normal. Anything less is abnormal. We are so... One of the, the, the reason Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 5, that we walk by faith and not by sight is because Paul understands the law of the reverse negative. He understands when God says, thou shall not kill, it's because people kill. And he says we walk by faith and not by sight because most people actually walk by sight. Uh, you know, uh, one of the reasons it's going to help us if, if some of these people uh, who are thinking about it come and join our church, one of the hardest things about joining our church is that we are the most diverse church in our smallness that I've ever seen. We have black, white. We have American-born blacks. We have, uh, have African-born blacks. We have people who have college degrees and master's degrees. We have people who barely passed high school. We have people who are emotionally mature and solid and have good marriages. We have people who have lots of problems. And what there, there's, uh, I'm thinking about actually writing a book on the unspoken doctrines of American Christianity because that no one would ever say or admit to, but are actually what we practice and live. And one of them is the doctrine of homogeneous. Uh, people want a church. Uh, you know, I had a guy recently who's, who's loving the ideas of our church. He's thinking about joining us. We've been having Bible studies for a while. And he said, the more I thought about it, the more I realized the only reason I went to the church I'm going to is because everyone looked like me. You know, they, uh, and everyone was my age, and they uh, had the same kind of beards and the same kind of tattoos and the same kind of piercings. And, and I said, wow, everybody's cool like I'm cool. And I felt like I fit right in. And it had nothing to do with anything deeper. 
that it was easy. It was the easiest path to good friendships. That's why people join fraternities and sororities. It's the easiest path to good friendships. Now, if, uh, what should be the case is that because 1 John chapter 1, I write these things to you in order that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and in his Son, Jesus Christ. The basis of your relationship should be your fellowship with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. No matter what the person looks like, tall, short, fat, skinny, educated, uneducated, big income, little income, get beyond that. And I really, we are getting better. That was something we really struggled with for a long time. Like all the Kenyan guys just hung out with the Kenyan guys and all the, you know, married couples hang out with America. You know, we are getting better at breaking down those kind of walls. And that is probably the most powerful thing we're doing, or at least uh, on, the, on the short list of most powerful things we're doing. You know, I love uh, the fact that, you know, Terry Pellegrino and Kent Shearer, uh, who are, what, 21 and 44, uh, go jogging together all the time. Probably, can you beat him? <laughs> so, uh, you know, um, that, that is awesome. Uh, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. You know what? In heaven, there aren't any of those distinctions. The source of our relationships is our relationship with God. Make it a point to cross cultures and, and age groups and educational statuses in your friendships. All right, let's get into this for today. Uh, seven keys to effective prayer. We're continuing, and we started uh, last, last, um, last uh, 930 session, we, we ended at number four, harmonious relationships in the body of Christ. And I, uh, I'll start there and, and move on. Um, that's really what I was just talking about. It, believe me, the early church, part of why it, con it grew from this little group of 120 obedient followers of Christ that were, that were present at the day of Pentecost into a, a force that conquered the Roman Empire in five, five centuries is because of the content of their life. And if you haven't studied it and read when the church was a family, that it will really give you a, a, a key to it. They had a level of community that could only be described as family level uh, based on Jesus Christ and not based on other criteria. And probably the most intense prejudice that I know of, uh, at least equal with so many other kinds of prejudice that have existed in the history of the world, was the prejudice of Jews toward Samaritans and Samaritans toward Jews and Jews toward Gentiles and Gentiles toward Jews. And they broke that down so effectively that by the second and third century, the Jewish, the Jewish biologically born believers had intermarried with the Gentile reborn believers uh, in such high numbers that it that the Jewish identity disappeared in the Gentile church. And it for, from then on began to be thought of as Jews were, were not Christians and and so forth because the, 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 originally it was a, a Jewish Christian movement. And that was they were, they were integrated so thoroughly that they lost all those distinctions over a century or two. God, do that again, and we will change the world. So harmonious relationships are, are very important. One of the things 
um, I'd encourage you to consider doing is one thing we, we can, um, I look at good marriages and, uh, I, you know, I, I really think highly of Jason and, you know, he is just so considerate and thoughtful all the time. And I can't imagine, uh, um, a situation where, like I asked Carla, where's Jason or what's he doing? And she goes, I have no idea. <laughs> and I kind of threw that out just to challenge some of our single sisters and our single brothers who live together and so forth. And uh, because, you know, I've worked with certain single guys that have lived at our house and so forth. And no matter how hard we try, we never know what they're doing <laughs> or where they are. And uh, believe me, there's kind of some, uh, a presence of God's spirit and blessing that comes on, you know, Psalm 133, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. You know, your wife may not require that you tell her I'm going with bowling with the guys, but you should require it of yourself. And you should do it with, you know, if you're, you know, if you have a certain responsibility in the church, especially in the day the texting is so e easy, Text everyone that has anything to do with that responsibility. Not going to be there because I have to work or I won't be there Sunday morning for this part. But don't just tell Jason. Tell, tell everyone. You know, when I send the emails about the, the titles and everything like that, I don't just send them to Catherine, who's printing them. I send them to Jason, Jordan, and Emily because they all have something to do with that. So um, for what it's worth, that was just a little pet peeve of mine. <laughs> Uh, so let's move on. All right, let's get started on today. today's. Edit, edit all that out, please, Jordan, later, if you would. Correct attitudes and motivations, righteousness. Um, right relationships is what righteousness is. We actually think of righteousness as fulfilling a list of do's and don'ts. But if you understand the law of God accurately, Paul brings out in Romans that the law of God embodies the truth. The reason it embodies the truth is because God is truth. Though every man be a liar, God is true. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the light. Someone who puts a high value on truth is someone can only come out of first relating to God because he is the truth. In 1 Thessalonians 2.15, it's a, a verse that everyone puts on the end times. But it, if you really think of it more in terms of a principle of cultures, it talks about those who perish because they did not receive a love for the truth. One of the most amazing things for me to watch over since the 1950s has been the progressive embracing of various wrong opinions, lies, deceptions about er almost every area of life that's come on our culture as it has rejected God more and more and become increasingly pagan. But the bottom line is there is not a radical commitment to loving truth. And frankly, the whole word hypocrisis, hypocrisy, is to, to wear a false mask. It's, it's basically to, to be such a liar that you're actually in relationships in your family and in the church under false pretenses. 
You know, I've known a number of brothers and sisters who've overcome addictions and so forth and uh, paid a big price to do so over a number of times, addictions to, you know, drugs, sex, alcohol, things of this nature. And all of them, there, there's a level of self-deception that you have to maintain to de- in deceiving of others to stay with the addiction. And the first and foremost breaking of the addiction is to say, I'm going to love to be in the light and be in the truth. No matter what it costs me, I'm going to come clean here. And I've known people who it's cost them their jobs, their careers, and whatever, but in the end, they were more right with God. So when correct attitudes and motivations begins with being rightly related to God and everyone else that's a high priority according to God's according to the seven institutions that we talk think about and talk teach about in the kingdom of God think about we don't think about we teach about in the kingdom of God series are you know there's a now family there's there's for this cause a mother shall leave or, a kid, or someone shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and so forth there's a there's a growing up thing where when you're 14 16 18 20 so in, in those years you individuate and your family becomes god in the body of christ more than it becomes your natural family and and you have to stay committed to integrity and righteousness and all that kind of stuff but um believe me as you start a family the reason the bible says it can only be with a believer is because you can't enter into a nuclear family that's not under the kingdom family of the local church. And so uh, that's why you can only marry in the Lord and not just in our, in our day of so many false conversions and hypocrite Christianity and so forth. Someone who really is as high integrity and, and, and far in the things of God as you, uh, so that your life will be under the same government So right relationships, um, frankly, is the key to all of God's blessings. And again, as we emphasized, we are not the moralistic, therapeutic deism people. We are not the uh, manipulate God with his promises, uh, what do they call it, prosperity gospel people, or any of those other kind of lying twistings of Christianity. If you obey God, you know, Romans 5 talks about those who reign in life, through Christ Jesus, and if you study who those people were, they were the people who were going to, who were being crucified and lit on torches and so forth. They were being, they were reigning in, in life by staying faithful to Christ and to His church as they were being killed and tortured. So I'm not saying that as you walk right in relationships and as your prayer life becomes more effective and as there's more blessing that it will always be hunky dory. You will have the trials you need to, uh, to grow in Christ. Isn't that a great promise? You'll have the crosses you need to bear. God is committed to freeing you from all idols. The, in the New Testament, something we, don't, we talk about, confessing your sins, and we leave it as a very vague thing today in the sinner's prayer. But in, in the Ten Commandments goes a long way to, re, to restoring that. But what really restores it 
is the first couple commandments, how Paul tells the Thessalonians that he was grateful that they had turned from idols to serve the living and true God. Something John has emphasized very, very rightly in all his teachings over the last couple of years has been the fundamental nature of becoming a Christian is to turn from idols. And, you know, if you study what's called codependency, codependency is, is making an idol out of relationships. It's trying to grasp for what God has for you outside of God's timing, plan, and will. And so, correct attitudes and motivations. Let's look at a couple of scriptures along this line. Jesus says, when you pray, he doesn't say, if you pray. Okay, he's assuming that all Christians have an ongoing, disciplined, committed prayer life. That's a given. You know, the fact that we have to kind of say things like when all is said and done regarding prayer, there's more said than done, and we kind of have to hope you have a prayer life and so forth, that's just not even starting on the right biblical plane. <laughs> a, a, a real converted Christian prays without ceasing. They're, you're communing with God. Uh, you have different kinds of prayer. There's five kinds of prayer, reading the word, etc. is a type of prayer, intercessory prayer, spiritual warfare prayer, prayers of petitions, and so forth. But you're, a, a real Christian is praying. So that's when you pray. It's not even if you pray. And, the, and that prayer is that two-way communication to God whereby you're you're hearing God and you're being a conduit to effectively birth his kingdom purposes of reconciliation and redemption wherever you go. Uh, but don't be, when you pray, as you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, hypocrites, where he talked about that. Do they love to stand in the synagogues in the corners that they may be seen by men? That's what, you know, uh, their real motivation is to look pretty good. It just made me uh, think of a, there was an old Who song called Substitute, which is actually all about hypocrisy. And he says, you think we look pretty good together. Uh, and that's really what, that's really what uh, hypocrisy is all about. It's when you care more about how you look than where you're really at. It, that, that one opening door to Christ holds people back for years at times. That's a make it or break it deal. You, can, you know, Galatians 1.10, if I was still trying to please men, I could not be a bondservant of Christ. It's a spiritual law of the universe as sure as the law of gravity. You can't just go running off a building and hoping that you'll grow wings and fly after you jump in the air and take this step of faith. And that's really kind of what people do is they like hope they could be right with God without actually getting right with God. <laughs> That's what hypocrisy is all about. It's about living in a kind of lie, a kind of deception, a false mask. You're nasty to your wife in the car, and you have a big fight and so forth, and you pull into the church parking lot, and someone says, how are you doing? Oh, great. The Lord, isn't the Lord good today? And, you know, and your wife's saying, yeah, that's not what he was, where he was like 30 seconds ago. You know, you get it, right? Psalm 66, come in here, all who fear God, and I will tell you of, of what he has done. I cried to him with my mouth, and, and he was extolled with my tongue. That's prayer. If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. But certainly God has heard. He has given heed to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be the God who has not turned away my prayer, nor his loving kindness from me. You know what? 
you're better off uh, to skip the prayer meeting if you're there because you're supposed to be there and you have all kinds of sin in your heart that you have done and haven't confessed or you're planning to do uh, when the meeting's over. <laughs> you know, I, uh, it, I'm amazing. I don't know if I should ter- share this testimony, uh, but I was, I was in a big prayer meeting once with a lot of um, up-and-coming leaders, and, uh, and I was responsible for the prayer meeting, and I wasn't in the right place with God. I had some things that I needed to repent of, and we were praying, and there was just not much anointing on the prayer meeting. And I decided to leave and uh, go home and let them pray without me. And so uh, this was most none, most of you weren't born at this time, but um, I ended up realizing I'd forgotten a notebook and a Bible or whatever and went back. And when I went back 10 minutes or 15 minutes later, the power of God had fallen on the prayer meeting so powerfully that people were worshiping and speaking in tongues and repenting and and so forth. And I whispered to the to the person that, because uh, I wasn't right with God at that time, and, and uh, I whispered to the person who was leading the prayer meeting after I left, and I said, see what happens when the sin has left the room? Now, a lot of you like the story of the, of the sin of Achan, but really, that, that stands between Grace Christian Fellowship and our destiny, is whether we can have the humility and the zeal, the true zeal for God, to walk honestly and rightly before God. And say, and, and confessing to who we need to confess, uh, where we're really at. And frankly, it's not about how many prayer meetings we have. That's not a formula. It's really about where where we're at with God together as we continue to walk forward in God. Now, Jesus gave the principle of the tares and the wheat, and we will probably never have. Uh, every church has hypocrites. Every church has false Christians. Uh, every church has people that isn't coming clean. But there is kind of a preaching in such a way and a living in such a way that, that we minimize that in our midst. And frankly, we've made a lot of progress as a church that, in that respect. But as Paul said to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 4, he says, it, regarding loving one another, you are taught by God to love one another, and indeed you do love one another. You do practice it. Then he turns around and does a brother Greg on you. Everyone says, no matter how much your progress you make, I ask you to make more. And then he says, but I urge you to excel still more. That's, it's a little bit like, you're doing really good. I just want you to know, I'm really amazed at how much progress you've made. So let's make some more progress. <laughs> That's really what he's saying. Uh, in Ephesians 4. So correct attitudes, motivations, and righteousness. There will, you know, the Bible says, who can say I have made my heart pure? I've cleansed myself from my sin. No one. Press forward into truth. Press forward into reality. And I, I beg of you to understand that your brother or sister sitting next to you you know, when Leah Gray makes all these sacrifices for the Wright, Pat minister, Wright Brothers ministry, or when Jason makes all these uh, sacrifices for the Wright Brothers, Wright State ministry or whatever, too many rights in this. Um, it really, 
you really have a role in it. Whether you're going there and attending the meetings or whether that's your area of ministry in the church or not. And that role goes way beyond your tithes, which helps. But it really goes to God's blessing us corporately because of our walking covenantally faithful and, and true and in the light with one another. If you've never studied Joshua, is it Joshua 5, the sin of Achan, or Joshua 7? I, I, consider you to, I encourage you to consider studying that because you are your brother's keeper. And what God is going to do in our church, he's not looking for superstars. He's looking for humility, truth, and reality. We're not going to accomplish it by pray more, study more, do more, go more, share more. We're going we're gonna to accomplish what God wants by being rightly related to him, by grace, by confession of sin, by letting those scriptures convict us, by, grow, by walking in truth and reality. And as we do that, there becomes a corporate blessing that, again, doesn't protect us from being tested, but it does cause us to bear fruit. Now, hold though, it can take what I'm saying and, and look at the scriptures afresh through that lenses. Because there's all kinds of verses, like John 15, 8. By this my Father's glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. That means he's saying that it glorifies God to bear fruit, and that's the test of your true if your discipleship is true or not. Now, almost all evangelical Christians would say that's preaching works and preaching performance based, and uh, and some would apply it in a way that preaches works and performance based. What you've got to find is rightly divide the Word of God to keep that grace based, and to understand that as we walk humble. Uh, leaning on the grace of God, confessing our sins to the proper people, uh, seeking, reading his word and seeking grace, etc. As we stay rightly related, there is a realm of blessing. Of the, the first and foremost blessing is always an increased manifestation of his presence, his fruit, and his gifts. And that bears fruit in other lives. And that's why, um, you know, it's, we, it's that as, the, as everyone grows in that way, you actually are blessing the people around you. Isaiah 58, um, I'd encourage you to read that chapter in this light. Depending on how you count them, there's either 10, 11, or 12 promises in, of what God will do. What I love about Isaiah 58 is it's not about what God will do if you fast 40 days or some other giant uh, superstar accomplishment. Jesus fasted 40 days. I know people who fasted 40 days, but and there's nothing wrong with it if God's called you to it and other people confirm it or whatever. I'm not saying don't do it, but on, Isaiah 58 is, is promises for fasting one day. Is this not the, the, the fast I choose, a day for a man to humble himself? Isaiah 58 was actually written to the Jews about the proper fasting motives and attitudes on the day of the day of atonement. Because all Israel fasted on that one day together. But 
that has been fulfilled in Christ so that every day is the day of salvation. Any day you choose to fast is Isaiah 58, the day of atonement. And you're drawing near to God on the basis of Christ. You're entering his courts with thanksgiving and so forth by the flesh, the veil of Christ, which is his flesh. And those promises are yours. But it's interesting, um, I, the way I count it, because a couple of them are kind of duplications, I get 10, but some people say 11, some people say 12. You, you uh, number them however you want, but, but study them. And you won't fast if you don't keep your eyes on the promises. You know, Mahesh Shabda's book, The, the Secret Power of Prayer and Fasting, kind of helped me uh, take fasting to a whole new level because I saw the results in his life. He was a leader in our churches way back in the 70s, and he's uh, done, had amazing things that have come about in terms of miracles, raising people from the dead, etc. So, um, you know, whatever you, the, the point is this, you, you won't get through a fast. I, I, I can tell you, I've started approximately 100 fasts. For every one, I've completed what was my regular goal. But by the grace of God, I have completed some. And uh, even a fast of a day is a significant thing. But those 10 promises, which you should, you know, paste on your refrigerator and dashboard of your car, tape them inside your glasses. No, don't do that. But (laughs) keep them in front of you somehow are conditioned upon seven conditions. Jesus himself said in Matthew 6, beware of practicing your righteousness before men and so forth. And then he talks about three areas that he assumes Christians are doing, giving alms, fasting, and prayer. And he talks about how not to do those to be seen by men and and hypocrisy and, and so forth. And he basically says that if you fast in secret, Um, God will reward you openly. Really, the reason you really should have a well-thought-out place where it's your getaway place that nobody knows you're going to. It can be your car. I was with somebody yesterday, and we stopped at Eastwood Park uh, because I I used to have a plastic thing that was, uh, you buy them to put them on your treadmill, but I would just put it over my steering wheel because there was just too much gem leasing and every other kind of activity at my house. So I would go somewhere into a park, face a lake, nice scene or whatever, and put it there and put the Bible there and turn off my phone and nobody could find me. Now, my wife knew I was doing that. I was, you know, and so forth. But even she couldn't call me for a few hours because even God's more important than her. So when Jesus talks about go into your inner room to your secret place, I'd encourage you to at least have one, maybe two or three of them, where, no, where you can't be interrupted. Flip over uh, to the next page. Be- beyond forgiveness, uh, we need to go to obedience. Again, John 14, 21, skipping down. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father, and I will love him and disclose myself to him. Now, that seems like performance-based statement. And in the as you sort it all out, there's two mistakes that people make. One is what's probably the 
most predominant mistake of our of our time was they turned the grace of God into licentiousness or antinomianism. I oh I had a deeper experience of God and I gave my life totally to God, and they may have done so in their heart, but because of their paradigms of theology that doesn't say that that has to be constrained by obedience to biblical things, it doesn't mean anything. You know, keeping holy the Lord's day, which is the first day of the week in the New Testament and so forth is part of what it means to keep his commandments. L- walking rightly related to one another, etc. You know, so if we, uh, the one who has his commandments, for, so you got to study them, and keeps them is the one who loves God. You know, there's, you can only go so far, husbands and wives know this, when uh, you tell your wife all the time you're real goo-goo and you hold hands a lot and you uh, embarrass her in public by telling everyone how much you love her and so forth, and eventually she says, if you love me, don't forget Wednesday night is trash night. <laughs> you know, if you love me, make sure uh, you get the lawn mowed. And those are silly examples, but really... Um, if you love someone, change your orientation out of selfishness to self-sacrifice. Let the person know where you are, what you're doing, what you're about. Don't, don't have big key relationships where your motivations and your attitudes and your strengths and your weakness are a mystery to your friends. You know, part of any relationship should be like, you know, this is my weak area. Would you help me stay accountable here? This is my strong area. Sure, I'll be glad to help you stay accountable here. Don't have unrealistic, non-serving relationships. First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, one of the great heresies of, of modern-day evangelicalism is that you only need to confess your sins to God. You do not need everyone in the church to know your sins. And you certainly, I'd never want to hear all your sins <laughs> because I don't have that much time. But uh, but you know what? The stuff that's problematic, stuff that's ongoing, get somebody qualified to be your accountability partner. And even if there, there can be at times reasons why that's not going to be your pastor or whatever, but at least let your pastor know, I'm, this guy helps me in this area. I, I know several guys in our church that have an accountability partner in, in an area that's not even a member of our church, but I'm at least aware that they're doing that. And I like it. I like that. Believe me, no pastor wants to be like the person who you go to for every, you, they just, no one would have time. You'd wear them out. But uh, on the other hand, this idea, um, I'll pick on Terry because he's here. And as Terry and I have been having Bible studies and he's come into a more experiential relationship with Christ and turned his life over more fully to Christ and so forth. At one point he pointed out, one of the things I like about the Catholic sacrament of reconciliation or forgiveness is I like this one particular prayer who always takes the time to lay his hand on you to pray before God and say, I forgive you. Because Jesus gave that power to the, to, to the priest of the Lord, which is you. you. You know, one of the reasons unforgiveness is such a dangerous thing is you at least are ruining your life with it. And there's a very good possibility that you're damaging other people's life with your unforgiveness. 
it's a huge, huge issue. Uh, because the whole, Jesus said, beginning in Jerusalem, uh, forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in my name. And frankly, part of what it means to be Christians is to be a conduit for a spreading forgiveness. And if we have unforgiveness in our heart, wow, we have, we have kind of messed the whole mission up at, at a beginning point. You know, there's certain kinds of sins that, that, that keep you from getting into the door of Christ. One is un, not confessing and repenting of your sins, but another is holding people in unforgiveness. You'll never even really get started with the Lord until you, you know, John highly recommends and, and we highly recommend a book by R.T. Kendall called The Total Forgiveness Experience, which is based on his book called The Total, Forgive, Total Forgiveness, and it's a workbook to make sure you've forgiven everyone. Now, I haven't gone through it. John did. But you know, here's, here's what I would say. I hope R.T. Kendall would agree with me. You need to have actively received your forgiveness from God. In other words, you need to acknowledge publicly, I know God has forgiven me of this. You need to uh, forgive yourself. As weird and blasphemous as this is, you need to forgive God. Because many people, that's the whole lie of the devil, indeed, is to, is to uh, twist God's motives. God knows that in the day you eat of it and so forth. Many people have unforgiveness in, toward God. You know, my brother died at this age or whatever, and I've never been able to forgive God since then. There are a lot of very bitter people who are mad at God, even as, as absurd as that seems, uh, be, because they embraced an offense when something didn't go according to the way they thought it would go. That's one, of, that's one of the dangers of this whole moralistic thing we've been talking about today, is if you believe God owes you, and, and so you, you run from Potiphar's wife, and you think you're going to get some great reward, and you get thrown into jail for it, that was the blessing of God. He was saying, you bore fruit in a little thing, so I'm going to prune you back way more and put you in jail because then there's where you're really going to grow into the things I have for you. <laughs> That's how it works sometimes. I, I was really doing everything God wanted me to do, and everything got worse. Be, but, it, but from God's perspective, everything actually got better. And that's... Uh, if you can, if you if you ever lose sight that God is sovereign in your circumstances, and that He's loving, you will actually re be resentful, unforgiving, and bitter towards God, which is a deceived perspective. But if that's your reality, you need to get free from that, and you need to get free by actively, out loud in front of some uh, the, the angels of God and the ministers of God. That that's what we. We end up doing a lot of that in our deliverance sessions that people could have done ahead of time. You you need to pray before you know a pastor, your husband, whatever, and forgive this person or that person and even God. Then you need to forgive one another. You need to receive forgiveness from people and you need to give it. And all of that is just a starting point to walk with Christ. And then you, then you need to go beyond that to begin to take up your cross, follow him, and become Christ-like in your mission. You know, overcoming things like laziness and procrastination and all the things that hold us back, 
can only be done out of the grace that that we once we get past these starting points we're talking about of confessing our sins, repenting of our sins, be, walking in the light, uh, uh, conf- forgiving and being forgiven and all, humbling ourselves. All of these will keep you from getting started with God, pride, etc. There is a blessing of God and there is a curse. If you don't understand that, start with Deuteronomy 28, which is around 66 verses long, and it has 11 verses of promises that if they hear the Lord and obey him, these are the blessings he'll do. Then it has 55 verses of what the judgments will be upon them if they don't obey the Lord. And those 55 verses are the key to understanding the rest of the Old Testament. They are exactly what happened to Israel in the first and second and final dispersions. God fulfilled all of the curses of Deuteronomy 28, beginning with the first captivity of the northern kingdom in 722 A.D., the, the, the captivity, B.C., I said A.D., B.C., 586 B.C., the, the, uh, the, the captivity of Judah, all the way through Alexander's dispersion in around 333 B.C., the Romans' dispersion, and finally the final dispersions in 70 A.D., and there was actually like another Jewish revolt in, in, in the last one in 135 or so A.D., give or take a couple of years. I think I got that run right. Uh, you know what? If you look at the history of Israel, all every curse of Deuteronomy 28 was faithfully administered to them by a loving father. And you can count on those promises in your own life. <laughs> you really can. All right. Uh, deciding whether I'm going to st- stop here or keep going. Uh, number six is correct context and biblical strategy. Uh, I think I'll just introduce six and seven and cover them next Sunday morning here. The correct context stuff is simply this. Jesus said, I will build my church. One of the things we're very up against increasingly since the Reformation is uh, what some people have called a la carte line Christianity. Uh, I was speaking to somebody who's who I have been discipling for some time and asked them to read certain books about the church and certain verses about the church and study and they finished all that, and I said, so what, what you're up against today is simply this. Uh, almost every church has some biblical th- emphasis. Because there's a thing about DNA that even if you're born uh, with significant handicaps or so forth, you're still going to be made in the image of God. You're still going to reflect your parents and these kind of things. Uh, even if there's severe deformities and so forth. So even in churches that don't have uh, teaching about how an older brother should disciple a younger brother, it sometimes still happens. Even churches that don't have an effective doctrine of community and how to build community and a culture of community, some level of community happens. Some level of prayer happens. You can't stop the born-again believers of Christ who come together from, from being the church to some degree. But restoring the whole biblical model of the church is the biggest imperative before us. It will take centuries. It will take correctly handing it down for several generations. Uh, but it's, it's a must. It's not an option. 
See to it, God said, that you build everything according to the pattern. What you, what we're, what's happened in the landscape today is certain churches have this good flavor and certain churches have that good flavor, and usually they have one, two, or three biblical emphasis. The most effective churches usually focus in on one emphasis to the negation of others. To focus on all the emphasis would, is a very difficult thing, which is what we're trying to do. <laughs> Let me tell you, it's not easy. You know, uh, John and I love a church. We even loved it so much that we went and visited there called Bethel Redding in California. And if you want to know about use, uh, the baptism in the Spirit and spiritual gifts and using gifts for inner healing and deliverance and so forth, they probably do it about the best with integrity that's out there. But it's pretty much that emphasis is in, in with, to the negation of some others at times. And what we're, what we're looking for is something that brings all these things back together, and that's what I'll talk about next Sunday at 9.30. And then seventhly, practice per, per, perseverance and principles of faithfulness. One of the things that we have to, we have to be, most people aren't willing to preach the gospel to themselves. Get that uh, devotional called Note to Self and read the introduction. He talks about how preaching the gospel to yourself. You, one of the things we lack in our culture is the ability to call ourselves up to a higher standard. We're not tough enough on ourselves. Most of us have to get married to get a wife that's tougher on us or something, you know, or, or vice versa, or, you know, or, you know, some single brother might, might be loving enough to bring you up to a higher standard. Most of us don't even do that for each other, though. You know, really, part of what should the church should be is, to, is you should be your brother's life coach. In other words, when he's working out and you say, one more rep, and then he does one more rep, and you say, that's a blessing, brother. One more rep. And then he does one more rep. And then he, you're doing great. One more rep. And then, and then eventually after four times of that, he goes, do you know what one more rep means? <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, that's what Paul does when he says you're loving one another, but, but I encourage you to excel still more. I would encourage you to, to get this, this understanding in your heart. And we'll, then we'll focus on this next week. Um, incomplete obedience is disobedience. And we have been raised in a kind of uh, approbation of all things culture that, again, C.S. Lewis and others started to address in the 50s, where we basically have got it kind of settled. We, you know, we've, we get enough discipline to finish college and not lose our job. And we tithe, and we're pretty, whatever. We get to certain levels, and we go, that's enough. That's all the further I'm going with God. <laughs> and we really do. We all do that. In our, we kind of make a deal with our flesh. You know, if you don't bug me about sleeping in until 10 o'clock, you know, I'll get up on Sunday mornings and go to church or whatever. And, you know, part of what it means to walk with God is to be thankful for all the sanctification he's brought you but never settle, because what you're doing is you're robbing yourself from more of God. John, 1 John 3, 3 says that when we see him, we will be like him. Isn't that amazing? You're going to not have a sin nature someday. Wow. You're going you're gonna to be like Christ. And 
basically says anyone who has that hope, hope is based on a belief in something you don't see yet. Any, if you really have that working inside you, you'll pur- purify yourself as he is pure. In other words, whatever level of sanctification and maturity and wisdom and knowledge and fruitfulness you attain to, you'll want more. And we'll look at that next week. Amen.